Is art inherently political, even when there's an absence of anything remotely controversial in the text? To what extent do filmmakers have to explore and criticize without proselytizing the political? For this episode of the podcast, we were joined by two very different filmmakers, Charles Burnett and Oliver Stone, to discuss current and past media and political landscapes and how they interact with each other. First up, Film Comment contributor Ashley Clark spoke with Charles Burnett on the occasion of the digital restoration of Burnett's 1990 film, To Sleep With Anger, which had a week-long run at the Film Society of Lincoln Center. The director, perhaps best known for his classic film Killer of Sheep, spoke with Clark about his experience as a student at UCLA, where he was part of a group of filmmakers who would become known as the LA Rebellion. In the shadow of Hollywood, these filmmakers sought to correct the distortions of black exploitation by developing their own films through an environment of collaboration and mentorship. Here's the conversation. Hello, uh, my name is Ashley Clark. Welcome to the Film Comment podcast. I am a contributor to Film Comment and The Guardian and frequent appearee on the Film Comment podcast. I'm delighted to be here today with Charles Burnett, director of many classic films, including Killer of Sheep, My Brother's Wedding, and To Sleep With Anger, which is screening in a brand new digital restoration here at the Film Society of Lincoln Centre. So thank you for joining me today, Charles. Thank you. I'll start really by going right back to the beginning. And I'm just wondering mm. about your kind of your, your decision to pursue film as a career and coming into that world in the first place. Well, you have to understand the times, you know, we were, it was after the civil rights movement, there's a Vietnam War, there's all this chaos going on. And people felt that they can do something. We all felt that we could make a difference. And uh, it was also this, this notion that if you were a person of color, it was your responsibility to speak out. And, you, you know, this whole notion, this cliche about you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. It was really strongly felt then. And what happened was, you know, Hollywood had been making a lot of these exploitive films, films that distorted their stories. And uh, so we were reacting against those issues, black exploitative films and things like that. So I think that's what came to drive us and to motivate us to make our own particular films and try to correct these distortions. And can you talk about some of the education you had? I mean, there's a figure, uh, Eliseo Taylor, mm -hmm. who was very important, I believe, in bringing in this kind of third world film and, and um, cinema novo and lots mm -hmm. of different anti-colonial mm -hmm. cinema movements from around the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to hear you talk about the purpose of cinema, particularly as, as against the exploitative films that you're talking about that Hollywood was mm -hmm. making. So cinema as a, as a tool of liberation. Well, before Taylor, you know, I, when I got into UCLA, he wasn't there when I first went there. I had some really good documentary filmmakers, and Basil Wright was really a special person that I just happened to you know, be at there at the right time because he was the one that sort of directed me into the sort of films I want to make. And he explained what he was doing. Uh, because when I was at UCLA, uh, when I first went there, there was doing that whole flower children child kind of a thing where people were exploiting, uh, were interested in own sexuality and expressing it and all this sort of thing. And uh, those were the kind of films I was, uh, or the environment I came from. You know, I wanted something that was really more meaningful in a sense, not just to my own personal development, but for the community I came from. So I was sort of drifting around at UCLA, not finding until that Basil Wright. And then it was a very few people of color at the, at the time at UCLA. So it wasn't any kind of movement as such. It was sort of everyone was sort of independent on one hand, but at the same time UCLA had this policy where you had to work on other people's films. 
And so there was a sort of collegial, kind of brotherly or sisterly, because everyone sort of participated in each other's films, you know, no matter who you were or whatever. So that was great. And more and more people of color came in into the department. And then what Taylor did, when Taylor came in, he was one of the first black teachers there, he developed this program called Ethnocommunication, which brought in a quota of different groups. And then you had this mass of, 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 of people of color in the department, like Native Americans, Asians, and Hispanics, and black, and things like that, and had their own equipment and everything. It was under Ethnocommunication. And I was one of the TAs that that was involved in that, had a class with some of these students. And then, you know, he brought in like Third World Cinema and things like that, you know, which were, were a lot of political films. He brought Osman Ben and people, some African filmmakers there the first time. You know, we knew we were there for to make a difference in the kind of films that were being made and the kind of images that were produced by, by Hollywood about people of color. But we were able to define what we wanted to do much clearer with him being there and with the kind of films that he was showing in Ethnocommunications. And can you talk a bit more about the way that you worked collaboratively and how important that idea of collaboration, working together, taking different roles. I mean, Julie Dash separately mm. has talked about it almost being like jazz. Mm. Um, can you just talk a bit about that collaborative well, aspect? Yeah, one of the good things about, I guess it had to do with being at UCLA. At SC, it may not have worked that way because SC, they're very structured and you geared you toward Hollywood to be in, 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 you know, in the studios and things like that. UCLA was kind of anti it was for art, you know. It was they try to make you into a filmmaker, you know, not a director or anything like that per se. But well, you cover all your bases, and because it was this environment where you you really got your education from other students and and working on their films and things like that, you know, and you got your grades or whatever it is from the teachers. But it was, it was working with the students that really propelled you and made you who you were. And when 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 the people of color came, we formed a, a group and we discussed what is you know, black, Hispanic, whatever it is, film. Because there was this intercommunication program that started it in a way. In Elotero's Third World Cinema, we were developing our own aesthetics, so to speak, you know, our own cinema. In fact, after that, you know, there was a Chicano coalition came about because of that. Uh, the Asian, the visual communication came about that really had a big impact on those communities making films, the kind of films. Well, I mean, we developed lasting friendships and beyond just the normal student filmmaking, whatever it is. But we felt that though we had, unlike other students, we felt we had some goal that we all shared, you know, that was outside of our own personal, I mean, the director or whatever it is. That was maybe, if, if it exists, it was secondary. We wanted to make a difference. And presumably kind of, there's an irony that you're so close to Hollywood as well, you know, where you were. The idea of actually people get, seeing your films, you know, getting your films out there and distributed, and that kind of sits at odds with the kind of the methods and practices you were doing. You were not interested in, in commercialism, were you? And I'm interested in that balance for well, you. No, we didn't, even though Hollywood was there, we looked at it as not an attraction or anything like that or, or, or want to be. It was just the opposite. It was a thing that really destroyed who we were. I mean, it was part of this, this conspiracy, so to speak. So we had these negative feelings about it. The thing that we screwed up on was not really understanding uh, the whole structure and how to how to sustain ourselves. How do we had the purpose, we had talent, but we didn't have the mechanism in place. We didn't didn't have to be a lot of money. We just had to have a diverse group of people working with us, like people who 
didn't necessarily want to be directors, you know, who wanted to be in different aspects of supporting film and social either, either producing uh writer, I mean, like, not necessarily film writers, but, you know, like journalists like yourself and things like that, you know, and people who who had a business savvy as opposed to filmmakers who had just had this, you know, in many ways it, it was limited because their abilities and, 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 and awareness and knowledge was limited. And so we never really, like this whole thing about L.A. Rebellion, you know, it could have been something. a term that was Clyde Taylor came yeah, up with yeah, in yeah. the mid-'80s. Yeah, Clyde Taylor, good person, but... In a sense, looking back on it, I can see where he can where, where that would have come from, and we were rebelling against the studio system and the images and things like that. So that part of it is true and legitimate. But at the time, I don't think if you'd asked us then, we'd certainly said about the rebellion against or against the studios and images, but not as you know, like it's stated now. In a sense, my problem is that we could have done something better if we just had that little bit of knowledge about what we could have done and invited other people in to be a part of it. And presumably that's applicable to, to young filmmakers of color today yeah. in a rapidly changing landscape of distribution and media consumption. I mean, would you say that that, that is still absolutely... A part of it you have to look at it as a business if you want to survive. And, and you want to create jobs. You want to, uh, Otherwise, say for example, like if, if you want to make a film and you have your friends to do it and things like that help you and things... Okay, that can only last for so long, you know. It has to be an industry where you have non-professional actors. They get paid where they start learning and become trained professionals at some point, you know, where they can make a living, where if you call up on them, you know, they have the tools now ready from, from the past and they make a living off of it instead of reinventing the wheel every time you go out, you know, and then boring people and exploiting them. You know, there were things we, we could have done to have made the whole process sustainable and better. We didn't. No, we were just filmmakers. Now, I mean, obviously coming from, from London and, and coming from a background of knowing, you know, John Acumfer at the Black Audio yeah. Film Collective, it was interesting here you speak before about how you felt that, you know, when you went to Europe, mm. you actually had arguably more support and, and more mm. feedback than you did in the States. Mm. Can you just talk about that for me for, for a bit? Like well, going to Berlin, for example, yeah. in 82? Well, two, two, two things. One, I think here this connection with, with the studios and things like that are producing and getting exhibiting your films didn't exist as, as such. You know, we knew we were making these sort of marginal kind of fringe films that are going to be ghettoized, if you use that term, because when we first started, the, the, the big production we, promotion we did have was with Pearl Bowser, who's here, and Oliver Franklin, who's in Philadelphia. They put together a tour of our films when there were enough of them, you know, like Kathy Collins in, um, in the, here in New York and and Bob Gardner and and a bunch of other folks here. And we visited local communities, uh, centers and things like that. And so we screened our films there, which was the biggest audience we had, I think. It never really crossed over into a white area. And then it was only in the, in, in, in the community. Went to Europe. It was a different ball game. It seemed like the, the, the festivals were looking for some new exotic thing. To, to beat the other festivals to it, you know. And so this whole thing about black independent films was a phenomenon to a certain extent, you know, so everyone wanted to get, to get in on it, thankfully. But there were people, you know, like Bill Greaves was, was, was one, and, and Bill Gunn. Bill Gunn did Ganjin Hess. His film was there earlier, and uh, I remember, because we were all there together at one point later, and and we sort of shared the same experience. One of the things, speaking about jazz and things like they said, Julie Dash, 
we felt as though we were like these immigrants in the, in the early days, you know, in the 40s and back in Europe, experiencing this renaissance, so to speak, uh, and discovery, and coming back and getting this kind of injection of, of possibilities and things, you know, because our forms were accepted, you know, and talked about. And Bill Gunn was a perfect example. His, his film was very well received. And he was telling me that press had fallen up to the door of the airplane. And in those days, you know, you could, you could walk almost to the guys who's going on the flight, people, up to the door of the plane. You know, it was just that free in a certain sense. Now you can't even get to the airport without getting searched and whatever. And so, but anyway, press were following all the way up to, his, to the door of the plane, he was saying. But when he got to, to the States, he landed total silence, nobody, no one addressed him, no one. I had the same thing would happen. I, I wanted some sort of recognition in Berlin, and it was all over the paper in Europe and stuff like that, you know, um, all over. When I got back to the States, you know, there was nothing. Even in the trades, they talked about the food in, in Berlin, but but not, nothing about the film had they did very well at the Berlin Festival. It must have been incredibly disheartening. It was expected. It wasn't. It, it was like, you know, here we go again, kind of a thing. But it was what it was. It wasn't so bad because you you shared in the same kind of situations that other people have gone through, much more talent than other and things like that, you know. But you feel like a, because of that, a certain kind of connection as well, ironically. But that experience. And the European acceptance, they wrote it about it like it was an art form, like it was unique in itself, and it was an art form. And it sort of validated our experience you know, in movie making and things like that, which is very, very important. I was going to say, as a filmmaker, I mean, do you, you know, every filmmaker has a different relationship with critics and mm -hmm. criticism. Are you someone who thirsts for kind of engaged, intelligent criticism of your own work and people really trying to dig into what you're going for. I mean, some filmmakers don't read critics. Some mm. filmmakers hate critics. Mm. How do you feel about that? I mean, you have to look at two things. One, people are different. You know, people don't like things, dislike things, depending on so, so many circumstances. So that's a given. But the problem, the critics I, I have a problem with, those who just hate your film. <laughs> you know, That's just like, just look at it a certain way. You say, where in the heck did he come from? You know, Or she, whatever it is. But no, I mean, but people who have legitimate differences, whether it comes from misunderstanding or whatever it is. I mean, the idea is to communicate. If you're not communicating, you have to re-examine, well, what did, what did I do? And it may not be that anything you did wrong necessarily. Just some people, I remember I was trying to do this film when we had this writer and um, these producers, and we were talking about the film, and it was a, a really great novel by this lady. I can't think of her name now. It was about three generations of women. And so... I was going to be directed, and this writer was trying to develop the story with this production company. And so one of the producers there, the only thing he identified with that he talked about a lot was in the story that the woman's father, one of the characters, shaved and used talcum powder a lot, you know. And he identified with that. Anyway, we're trying to get these three narratives together. The most critical thing was to get these two, three stories gelling, you know. And so the writer... She finally got the, the thing working. And so we gave this treatment to the producer, one of the producers. And his comment was he, he didn't like the thing because there wasn't a mention of the talcum powder. And so we're saying, now we have bigger fish to fry, as, as the cliche goes. You, know? you, 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 you can't breathe from the, just the, the notion that, is this guy serious? I mean, that's something you can add anywhere. But the biggest thing was getting these three stories to gel, to, to, to sort of 
work together. And he's talking about he's talking about the talcum powder. I mean, so we can imagine, you know, that's the way people are, you know. And, and so you run into people where you just have to, to say, yeah, I mean. I'm going to look out for hidden talcum powder. I don't, no, from now on. You never see it in my film anymore. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting this year and, and last year in particular, um, To Sleep With Anger, uh, the restored version premiered at Venice. Ava DuVernay's label uh, re-released Ashes and Embers by mm. Haile Gerima and Daughters of the Dust by mm. Julie Dash is, has also been restored and is being re-released this yeah. fall. There just seems to be a kind of a moment mm. in tandem with the, the touring LA Rebellion program, mm. uh, the book that's come out as mm. well. How do you feel about it all kind of coming back into, I'm not going to say Vogue because a lot of people have mm. always been behind this, you know, these films and watching them, but it, the LA Rebellion, so to speak, does seem to be having a real moment right now. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm surprised that uh, two things. One, there's a lot of people who didn't realize that there was this body of work that, that exists. And I know some filmmakers we talked to when we were showing it in LA was really surprised that this wasn't exposed earlier. That these people didn't know about the existence of a lot of these people. You know, there was a disconnect. I remember when we went to England, and some of the filmmakers there were talking about how the films that we did, it wasn't part of the LA Rebellion, but we had made films and it was part of the collection that was shown around, you know. And uh, uh, they said how seeing those films had motivated them, you know, in a ways that I was totally unaware that it would ha those things would have happened like that, that the freedom of expression, the way we did it in a certain way, was a shot in the arm to a lot of people. And I think the films do have that, you know, if other filmmakers. It's sort of, it's, it's liberating because it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to copy or whatever it is, but it means that this person went there, I can go further, you know, I can, can do that, whatever it is, as well. And that's what I like about certain films. You know, not that I'm going to copy them, but I say, oh, this person spent some time and, 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 and did his homework, whatever it is, or, and just allowed things, the freedom of expression, you know rather than being locked into a certain convention because it's done over and over and over again. And that's got a lot to do with kind of rejecting the Hollywood schema of kind of psychology and characterization and plots, hasn't it? Yeah, it's that, but it's something kind of um, a way of seeing the world differently. I say this because a friend of mine, Ian Connor, we went to film school together. He's Scottish, of course. And he used to like, he liked jazz and, and blues and jazz. And so he was talking to me about it one day. And I just, I said, what do you like about blues and jazz, you know? And I thought you'd be listening to classics and things like that. And he said, no, it's too rigorous in a classic. He said, when I, when I first listened to blues and jazz, it was like this freshness, this liberation. And I never heard it spoken in those terms before. Well, yeah, I could see that. And when I saw um, the films like Japanese, for example, uh, Ozu and people like that, you know, and, and, and saw how they made films about you know, Japanese and the culture and stuff like that. It was a whole new world. It just opened up like, whoa, I was unaware of, of the humanity and, and the real people. And though, you know, the Japanese in the, in, in the community and stuff, because part of where I live, West Los Angeles, that whole area, a huge part of it was, was settled by Japanese. I mean, had, you know, businesses and things there. And it wasn't until I saw films made by Japanese, I said, dang. So and I think, I hope that had an effect, art films had an effect on other people. And, and that's the kind of thing you want, you know, that, that people can empathize with you and, and see that. Uh, I mean, I remember being in Hawaii and the Sleep of the Anger was shown. And some people came up and sat and screening. You know, I didn't know black people had washing machines. 
and, and things, you know, you be, you say, um, I'll compound. <laughs> it's like a lot of things, if, if you don't have any connection with people other than the movies, that's all you know. It's an empathy aspect, isn't it? You know, yeah, actually it, being exposed to, you know, sitting. Well, sometimes I find that literally just talking to somebody for five minutes. I mean, I won't name names, but yeah. I ended up speaking with someone a few weeks ago at a function who, who decided that Black Lives Matter was a, some kind of terrorist organization. Yeah. And I, I realized that he's probably sat consuming a diet of Fox News and Rush Limbaugh and, and has got nobody to actually counteract that narrative. It took me five, five, ten minutes to just sit with the guy and put my point of view across. Yeah. And, you know, it's not someone I'd ordinarily socialize with, but it just kind of hit home to me that idea that you just really do need to talk. You need to communicate and empathize with people. Yeah. You know, you, you, you hear that a lot because people misunderstand that whole Black Lives Matter and it's like it's being racist or something like that. No, it, it, it just means to me, this stuff has been happening and no one said anything about it. You know, it wasn't just yesterday or two months ago or with Trayvon Martin, all this kind of stuff like that, particularly in the Watts in my community. I mean, kids were getting killed all the time. In fact, there was two things. One, and beat up. There was um, the irony of it is like seventy-seven was a well-known police station in, in, in South Central, one-story building, and a lot of the kids that grew up with ended up there, you know, and they would, a lot of them would come back beat up and all sorts of things, black eyes, everything, you know. And one of the comments the police would make said, "When you said what happened to him, he fell down some stairs." If you go to seventy-seven, it's only one story, you know. So where is the stairs? You know, what, uh, what are you talking about? He fell down. No one questioned that. You know, no one he said, well, he fell down some stairs. Police Gates, I don't know if you heard of Police Gates. He was a notorious police officer, a chief of police uh, that was worse in the world. And uh, whatever the police did, his captain, he would support them. And so the, the police department had this new baton, and it had a hook on it like this. It had an um, angle to it, and it came out about this far, and then it went up some more. And uh, when they employed that night, new nightstick, a lot of black men were killed, died in chokeholds. And finally, they finally brought it to the attention of everyone, and they said, well, what's going on here? And police Gates said, well, because black people's throats are made differently. Mm -hmm. The baton, which is ridiculous. And he got away with so much, you know. I think thinking of something like the glass shield, mm -hmm. where you kind of deal with the... Is the Michael Boatman character? Yeah, you know that psychology of how you deal with that within the institution is really fascinating. Yeah, but those stories in there was based on real, real, real events, true events. The names have been changed a bit, but they were based on police and courtroom miscarriage of justice. And funny, it's sort of an, an anti-cop movie, so to, so to speak. I mean, it, it's not anti, but it cr criticizes the police a lot. One of the main characters in it, Gary Woods, is a friend of the police. He and this other guy, three of them in there have these ride along with the police. They all, they all have Harleys, you know, so they all go out on police rides, you know, things like that. And uh, so all of his friends, former police, not former, but police officers, uh, were acting in the movie. Wow. And th yeah. Crazy characters. So, I mean, it's a bit of a lofty question, I suppose, but I'm, I may as well ask, given the, the climate of the country at the moment, what advice would you give to young storytellers and people who want to go out there and make films resisting what's happening you know how does it work nowadays what, what kind of advice would you give well the police are part of a larger picture in a sense where a lot of like beverly hills they would stop people of color 
the terrorism prevents you from going through Beverly Hills. It's not the cops. It's the people of Beverly Hills that are the responsible for that because they want that to happen, you know, and the cops are doing their job in, in, in that way, you know, like, like the police in South Central. They're oppressive because, you know, that's a way of keeping these people under control, these people, black people under control, you know. It's not them individually because they'd probably be somewhere else, but it's, it's part of the institution. But I think the biggest thing is to be honest, you know. I mean, there, there, there are good cops and bad cops. There's good people and bad people, you know. It's to sort them out and, and not just to group them all in, in, in the same. It's about the system and how, yeah. how bent it is. But look, I think we're going to have to wrap it up there. Oh, okay. I, I, I could talk to you all day. But once again, just want to say thank you so much oh, for joining us today. Thank you. Bye-bye. The first Vietnam veteran to direct a Hollywood feature about that war, Oliver Stone has never shied away from hot-button subjects, be they in the halls of great power, such as JFK, Nixon, Comandante, or, in the case of natural-born killers and savages, in the streets. His most recent film, Snowden, dramatizes the exploits of the notorious NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden. For this segment, I was joined by Matt Zoller-Seitz, author of The Oliver Stone Experience, a book of essays and interviews about the director's career. I began by asking Stone about his approach to exploring politics in films. I think Matt has a whole section in his new book about that, and I think he sees me more broadly as a dramatist, but I can't speak for Matt. I think there's a whole subgenre of crime films that have been from Scarface to U-Turn to Natural Born Killers to Savages, and he... He covers as well as history, as well as uh, Wall Street, football. I mean, politics uh, to me is, uh, is only can work on film and in, 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 what I, in drama as, as, as a t- with the tension, uh, as a thriller. And if anything, all my, the political films I've done for me have had, whether it's Nixon, Bush, or, uh, or JFK, have to have that element of the thriller aspect, what happens next. In a case like Nixon, where you don't have any gunfire, you don't have any violence, you have men talking, and not especially attractive men, but it's very, I, I'm very involved in the crosstalk and the sense of the unfolding of this mystery that is Richard Nixon. So that kept me glued. And I think uh, Snowden is somewhat similar problems in the sense that we don't have any uh, gun chases, uh, fire, uh, car chases or guns. and. There's nothing to resort to like that. It's pure unfolding of his mind. Am I wrong or right? Can you discuss it further, Matt? Help me out. Well, I was was going to say, Oliver, that was one of the things that I found most interesting in talking to you. The first thing that would happen every time I would interview you is we'd talk about whatever the news of the day was, and you were always really informed, and you had very strong opinions about it, and I didn't... i got to be honest, I don't get that with a lot of directors. That's funny to me, you know, because if you go to a Greek cafe or you go to a Turkish cafe or anywhere in old Europe, I mean, you men, men and women sit around and talk. I think men more so around the old coffee shops. You know, they always had their views of the day. That was part of the business of life. It was, uh, you know, your father, my father imparted those views to me. Uh, he'd sit around the table and talk. A lot of fathers do that, I guess, because I, I don't understand our society quite in that way. I don't know why fathers and mothers don't pass on their thought processes. I, I think they still do, but I think increasingly people are so over, overworked and stressed out and society is so fragmented and so is our consciousness that maybe it's not everybody's sitting down to dinner at the same hour every day where they can have those kinds of conversations. 
perhaps you'll laugh, but when I was I was watching TV uh, this weekend because of some films, and uh, I saw a lot of commer- uh, sports, and there's a lot of commercials, and all the commercials are are sort of like silly or superficial. Like you sit around, you eat taco chips, and you make jokes, or you you eat this product, or you eat that product, and you watch TV. Even Peyton Manning and all these people, that's all they do. So there's no conversation ever. When I was a kid, there was Father Knows Best. You know, you may you may laugh at it now, and it was certainly it was certainly a, it was commercial, but it was an interesting show because the father had relationships with his two uh, with his uh, three kids and tried to make sense of them. It was interesting. I don't see that as much anymore. More to the point, I think when you're talking about societal changes. I really don't think the way in which we, the United States, citizens of the United States, were involved, you know, our understanding of how we're involved in Iraq and Afghanistan is completely yeah. different from the way well, that's that... that's the fact that you can go to war, whether it's uh, Vietnam or Korea or Iran, Iraq. I mean, it just, it's, there's, it's out of sight, out of mind. And at the same time, we don't allow funerals to be shown. We don't allow the bodies to be photographed. And on general, the, the news is cut down so that if there's anything too bloody for our tastes, they don't show it because it might upset their commercial sponsors or their the feel-good well, habits. I mean, there's obviously also a political dimension to that. Started with George W. Bush, you know, Dick Cheney was the one who really pioneered with the first Iraq war, the use of press pools as opposed to reporters actually going out. And, you know, that really went into overdrive with the second Iraq war in Afghanistan. And Obama, someone who's sort of purporting this idea that, you know, we have drone warfare now, so we don't really have wars. So it's actually an uninformed public is kept completely sanitized. Yeah, and I, and I think it would be interesting to hear you talk about how you feel the difference between films about Iraq and Afghanistan versus films about Vietnam, because I think there's a real failure. I mean, obviously it's different because the war, both of those wars are still going on, but yeah. um, there's a real failure to editorialize or comment or sort of dig into yeah. what these conflicts really are, except for like, it sucks, yeah. you know, <laughs> which is, which is totally right. a But cop-out. talking about films that I did like that were political, certainly Z, uh, as a kid, I was in film school at the time, hit me like a, hit me like a lightning bolt. I thought Costa Gavras and Yves Montand did a wonderful job. And actually, when you go back and look at the film, it's a wonderfully structured film. It, it unravels the, uh, the surface explanation for an assassination, gets behind it and goes into the heart of the matter. And uh, I think that they make fun of him, but certainly I think Costa, as an ideologue, but certainly Costa Gavras, to me, uh, understood the situation in Europe very clearly. And what happened in Greece was a, was even worse than what, I mean, Nixon and, and Agnew and all that was even worse than, than it's portrayed. And then, by the way, that was uh, the Johnson period anyway. Lyndon Johnson also treated the Greeks like they were fleas. They said, we're going to swat your ass. We're going to sit on you if you don't do what we say. With some pretty crude dialogue in there. But anyway, there was also, don't you remember uh, Seven Days in May? Yeah, yeah. That is a brilliant movie. And I think goes to the essence of that situation in 1963. That's a movie that I know is very dear to your heart. And I detected echoes of it in several of your films, if only because of the idea that the military-industrial complex, and in particular the CIA, may be the secret authors of American history, to use that, that term that Norman Mailer used. And, you know, I get a sense of that in JFK, Nixon, born on the 4th of July even, a little bit, and now Snowden. Because he goes into the, you know, Ron Kovic goes into the political arena, and both 
two climactic scenes in the Republican and Democratic conventions. Yeah, this idea that, though, that the uh, it's the military is either tacitly really running things or they're constantly champing at the bit wanting to run things is something that has been always uh, front and center in a lot of your films about American history. Eisenhower said that, too, <laughs> about the military-industrial complex. And now it's the media complex and Wall Street, too. But, you know, yeah. they do run things very quiet way. Yeah. And have you seen contemporary films about Iraq and Afghanistan that you can really feel that or you would like to sort of comment on? Well, I'm not wild about the American interpretation on television of what's going on in this war on terror. I mean, they fell for the Bush line. And no matter what, what you say about how how enticing it is, I know, Matt, you're a TV, you, you're a TV critic. You may disagree with me, but the homelands, um, no matter how well done, they poison our minds. They, they make us stupid about the overall picture of the world. You cannot criticize the United States in television or films, for that matter. Uh, you cannot. You have to take a pro-American point of view on everything in order to get made. But after the Vietnam War, there was a period when there was... We could openly, in films and TV... Well, not TV, but films, criticize. I mean, why do you think that opening up happened? Do you feel like because there was an end... Or why do you I think, think it was a natural combustion? I think young, the younger generation did saw this, saw it on TV because it was graphically more graphically portrayed, and many of us yeah. went over there. And I think what we saw was disgusting, and it disgusted us and made us turn against this whole concept of we have to fight this war because of it's communist. We're fighting communism, and and that it it overturned almost overturned society, and I think. It was so scary to the Cheneys of the world and the Rumsfields who were draft dodging the whole time. That uh, well, not Rumsfield, but Cheney. They, they were right. and Bush, and you know it so f terrified them that they they made a gigantic effort in the late 1970s to come back, and they did. And with Reagan, they achieved they achieved what no one could believe they've achieved. They've actually set us back further than anything Eisenhower would have or Nixon, for that matter, would have proposed. They really have done this through money, big money, because they can get it, because they, the rich people generally support their position in society, and it's really set back America. So I think we have, a, we have to fight back as best we can to get the ball moving in a more progressive direction. Do you feel like, aside from something like Snowden, which is talking about disassembling something through images and really getting information out there that because uh, we're so distracted or because we don't read the full terms of agreement when we're signing up for software or <laughs> some website you yeah, know what I mean right. like do you feel like there are other examples of that happening now or do you feel like you're kind of a lone voice at the moment <laughs> my perception is that Snowden uh, brought our attention to something crucially important which is the need for privacy and our right to privacy and that it's constitutional and that's what America is about. And that has been seriously violated and continues to be violated. So uh, I have no, uh, no attachment in any way to this concept of that I'm being watched or this conversation is being tapped. It's so disgusting. Oh, no, absolutely. And I mean, what I would be interested to hear you talk on is, do you feel like people are 
able to respond to this, interested in responding to this? Have you seen instances? I don't of- know. You know, that's why the dramatists, you know, we talk, let's be honest, the dramatist who's a real dramatist would care about his society, would care about its citizenry, and would object to any of this stuff going on. So I don't know what they call themselves, and so many of them in Hollywood are, you know, they make movies, okay, fine, um, they're, they're stylists, this and that, but do they have any feelings about what's going on? The world is changing around them, that we're becoming sicker, kill people everywhere. I mean, I don't, I don't see the sense of outrage. Uh, I, I don't. I don't know that they're making too much money, you know. You, you know to be commercially successful in Hollywood, it has to alienate you from what's really going on. It, it's so difficult. You know, I like Syriana very much. That was an interesting movie. It was made with genuine good intentions, uh, and I think it was a very good movie. You know, you could argue that Hurt Locker certainly was an involving movie, but, you know, you have to look at the whole. But was there really a, a rainy, Iraqian point of view that we were violating this space? No. Wouldn't go there. Or even something like um, Argo, which is... Argo is, uh, yeah, it makes, it glorifies the United States CIA again. All yeah, this exactly. CIA stuff is, is propaganda. Oh, and totally. the CIA does, I mean, the Canadians did a lot too, but they didn't, didn't cover that. Canadians are not Americans, you know. So I think the CIA and the Pentagon have been very busy, very busy behind the scenes. As, and they have offices and stuff to help. And you saw the worst of it in... Uh, Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, God, oh, we argued it, about well, that. Oliver well, and I argued killed. about that movie for like an hour. <laughs> yes, well, it's, certainly it was guided by the CIA, yes. And it's a lie. I mean, if you buy, as I do, Seymour si- Hersh's uh, uh, investigation of the case, he, he did the My Lai Massacre, and he did a great job on weapons of mass destruction. He's a, he's a very serious journalist, but he gets published now in London. He doesn't get published in the United States. But his... his, his uh, De- deconstruction of, of Zero Dark Thirty is shocking. It's the counter-narrative, <laughs> like JFK was. But uh, yeah, but by the way, I want to say that Zero Dark Thirty is technically well-made. Yes, it's brilliant. It, it sucks you in. It's a well-made movie, but it's fundamentally flawed, and it's fundamentally bad for our society. It's a bad message. Right. And I think it's interesting. These films, you know, they, they look good. They are formally well-made, they're, they're thrilling, they draw you in, and yet there's still a majority of people on the right and the left who oppose these wars, and yet these films continue to be made that are fundamentally uninterested in being critical or just want to tow a certain line. Or they just want to show a lot of things blowing up. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's very uh, true, by the way. That's very true. This is where, I don't know if you saw Michael Bay's movie, uh, 33 Hours, whatever it was called. The Benghazi movie, yeah. Yes. That was pretty, pretty horrible propaganda. I mean, how many, uh, how many Libyans got killed by each American? I have millions. I mean, and Americans have a superhuman ability. Fantasy movies. They get shot. They get rolled over in trucks, but they're still alive, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed. Yeah. Every, every single soldier is like a vampire. None of them die. Right, right. <laughs> at, the end of the, at the end of this movie, Bay has three or four dead body, American bodies with flags on them. He goes back to that shot over and over again. Meanwhile, they've killed about a thousand Libyans there. <laughs> it's really unbelievable. As a combat infantryman, I object. As, as I do to Lone Survivor, the other one was, uh, or for that matter, American Sniper. He kills people in the Middle East. That's, that's not, this, there's, no, there's no thought about that. It's about his relationship to, to his wife 
and his country that matters, but there's no relationship to what he does with the world community. Do you think there's a relationship between the increasing fascination with like really, really huge explosions, military hardware, SWAT teams and stuff in movies, and the fact that the vast majority of Americans are not seriously at any risk of being asked to fight? I fear so. What's a monster truck rally about? (laughs) 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 And I think it's sad because I think it's going to lead, it's leading to Armageddon. Oliver, you know, I know you're very, you read, you read a lot about the news, you really keep on top of current events, and you, you, there are a lot of things you're very critical and pessimistic about, but the thing that I'm kind of fascinated me in getting to know you was, there's this Frank Capra streak in a lot of your movies. Like, you show things being very, very dark, but at the end, there's always hope. There's always hope for the idealist, for the reformer, and, you know, I try to reconcile these two poles. I think I did about as good as a job as anybody could, but I wanted to hear you talk about that, those two conflicting impulses i was raised american you know you happy ending man it's always the there was the way we were culturally raised you know our grandmothers told those stories where you survived the horror show the big bad wolf you you were not eaten by the the wolf or the vampire you know so i think we all have that i certainly am i get sentimental absolutely and and i like and i like to go out on a note believing that reform is possible and uh certainly uh the fact that he does the action in the Snowden movie, that that uh, Ed Snowden does the action, is in itself uh, a happy ending in the sense that he does bring hope to the population of our world. I mean, he's, he's addressing the young people of the world, you know, where we're going next. So there is hope there. But on the other hand, you know damn well that the power of government to re- of repetition to repeat to repeat to repeat to not change is very powerful and very strong and the power of corporations in the in the Snowden case it's bifurcated because all those corporations who were collaborating with the government before uh, before his revelations came out ended up going to the other side now and saying well we're all for encryption <laughs> and they want to provide the best service because they don't want to lose their customers to an, a competing service that's true for all the, uh, the computer co- corporations, but not for the uh, phone co- corporations that were named, the AT&Ts on which we're speaking and I'm speaking and Verizon's. Uh, they haven't changed. There's this weird cycle of films where they're all very much the same, where they're supposed to be these kind of dark comedies where sort of a American loser goes to <laughs> Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, War Dogs, the most, recent, most recently, yeah. Um, and Rock the Casbah, which is uh, was originally a documentary about Afghan star, and then they put Bill Murray as a schlubby white guy, sort of as the face of that. What's your sort of reaction? Because, you know, dark comedy, like something like MASH, was such a fundamental, you know, reaction to Vietnam. Yeah. No, I, I, I see where you're going. No, Robert Altman did capture a note, and uh, it's ironic. It was about Vietnam, but it was a supposed, it was supposedly set in Korea. <laughs> But I imagine, yeah, that, they caught a sense of outrage. They had a sense of outrage. I don't feel it when I see uh, Whiskey Foxtrot, you know, the Tina Fey movie. I don't feel it when I see, I haven't seen War Dogs, but I feel like it's jokey, you know. It's this American humor is supposed to be the best in the world. I don't agree. I think sometimes they're pretty <laughs> sick and they go along, with, they get too cynical and they just go along and they go along. You know, uh, you've got to have a sense of anger and outrage. You've got to understand the fundamentals that are going on here. And we have to address that in our films and TV, but we don't. Uh, for, for the most part, we don't. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what's 
dangerous to me is the, it, you know, the repetition kind of floods your mind. And so you, hey, we're Iraq spent billions of dollars. So what, you know, <laughs> trillions. We did so much damage. So what, you know, there's no consideration of the lives of others. And that's what bothers me about any war. Oliver, in the, in the book, you talked about the idea of nice guy culture as represented in the movies, and, and you talked yeah. about some of, some of the films you admire and don't admire. I was surprised to find out you were such a big fan of Wedding Crashers. Um, <laughs> can you talk about that a little bit here? Because I feel like it bears directly on what you just were talking about. Yeah. Well, it's true. The peak scene in The Wedding Crashers, and I haven't seen it in many years, I thought was the when, uh, when Willa Farrell shows up, and <laughs> he's even sicker than those two guys, and he takes, him to a, <laughs> he takes him to a funeral to pick up widows and stuff. That was the peak uh, point, and I think it was a very cleverly done. <laughs> and and O'Farrell and all those guys are great. You know, they're great actors. Uh, Vince Vaughn and Will, uh, Wilson, they're all good. But it's sick, man. <laughs> it's really sick. <laughs> and I, I can get sickness. I read Mad Magazine when I was a kid. But there's, you know, there's a place at which you also have to have anger and outrage. <laughs> uh, I've noticed one of the common threads in our discussions about films is you seem to be particularly annoyed by movies where the main character is basically a, an asshole in some way, but the movie won't own up to that, where they try to make you love him. Well, I think Salvador is a case where the rascal becomes, actually he commits himself to help other, another person he loves. And I think that was a, an interesting denouement. Of course, he doesn't succeed because he fails in everything. But, you know, look at Brando in Waterfront. He's a classic case. I mean, he he is a, he's a thug and he's a he works for the bad guys and then he goes straight and he and he and he and he tells and he informs on his boss right and then reverse that and see it at the time it was regarded as Kazan's excuse for have, having named names at the House on American Activities Committee so I think these are quite, these identities are fascinating because they change there's no easy handle on an identity you know. And so if you give me a specific film, we can trace the actions of the protagonist. But I like those kind of stories where the protagonist goes through changes and sometimes not often seen in the right light. They can, they can be misunderstood. One of the most uh, interesting parts of our conversation, Oliver, was when I brought up the idea of an audience surrogate. And this is when we were talking about natural born killers. And you said, what's that? Uh -huh. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it struck me that, you know, after all your years in the business, you'd never heard that term before, that it never even occurred to you to have an audience surrogate, this idea of the kind of the, the blank slate, nice, sweet, innocent person on whom the audience can presumably project themselves. You don't really do that. I had uh, tough heroes, and, and the, I had female protagonists in Heaven and Earth, I mean, who you saw what she went through. She had, you know, you have no, life is a difficult journey to negotiate. You have to find your way around a lot of different things. You know? I don't see it as simple, but I never made, I don't think I ever made simple movies. Uh, maybe I should. Can you see yourself ever making a movie where you, you are the star? Oh, I'd love to. If I, could, I would love to. I actually wrote something like that, but it's tough in the U.S. to get the financing to do that kind of a thing. But uh, we'll see. Life has maybe not run its course yet. I may have one more movie in me. You also like movies that are that are have nothing to do with politics. I remember you you sure. and I arguing about the uh, the merits of Pacific Rim versus Battleship. Well, that was one example. It was it was yeah you know, because it was so heavily criticized. I was just, what, what's all this fuss about? It was a good escapist movie. It didn't didn't have holes in it. Actually, it was kind of interesting the way the characters developed. But 
and it's not a movie that I you know, will remember through time. <laughs> but, you know, let's say I have, you know, the grasp of 100, 100, 200, 300 movies that I really have, I remember, you know, that, that lasted. You've been listening to the Film Comet Podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. (laughs) 